0: Talk Radio.
1: Good evening, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Um, tonight, I'm going to have a very special guest on from the Union of Concerned Scientists. Um, his name is. <laughs> Sorry, I kind of got in here late, as you can tell. Uh, his name is Aaron Hurtis, and I'm going to be actually adding him to the call right now. Um, so if you'll give me just a moment, we'll get everything started here on uh, V radio. I once again apologize, I was kind of running late um, out shopping and got caught in traffic rather unexpectedly. So anyway, um, give me just a moment. Hello, Hello, is this Aaron?
0: Yeah, it is.
1: Hello, Aaron. Uh, welcome to V-Radio. You're on the air right now, actually. Um, thanks for coming oh, great. on my thanks show tonight. <laughs>
0: yeah, sure thing. Happy to be here.
1: Um, well, uh, first of all, I just wanted you to start off with uh, um, telling my listeners what exactly the Union for uh, Concerned Scientists is all about and you know the kind of things that you've been involved in and what you've accomplished.
0: Yeah, sure. The Union of Concerned Scientists is an organization that uh, just celebrated its 40th anniversary. We were started by students and professors at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in 1969, and they organized around how the government was using scientific research, particularly as it pertained to weapons research and defense research. And they really wanted to create an independent voice for scientists uh, when it came to questions about weapons use uh, because they thought that scientific research was being used inappropriately, Um, They were especially worried about uh, nuclear deterrence and uh, building uh, missile defense systems. So we still work on those issues, Uh, those are still long-term issues that are with us and pretty much everything else we work on since we've expanded over that time has also been very much focused on long-term issues. Uh, So we have scientists working on climate change, we have engineers working on clean vehicles and clean transportation technology. We have people who work on food and environment issues uh, including genetic engineering and sustainable agriculture. Um, in 2004, we started a new program to deal with scientific integrity in government uh, because we got a lot of complaints from, um, from our members, our scientists, um, from other people connected to the federal government uh, that the work was being suppressed and manipulated under the Bush administration. Uh, that's something we're still working on now uh, to put permanent protections in place for federal scientists. Uh, so we really do work on a ton of issues, um, and I, I think they do all share that theme in common that they're about creating long-term solutions uh, to long-standing problems, particularly security problems and environmental problems. And we really try to bring the best science, the best technological information to bear on those problems. Uh, But unlike, say, scientific societies, um, we do take advocacy positions on issues. Um, We employ lobbyists so we can, you know, take our scientific and technical information and our policy recommendations uh, straight to state houses and straight to Capitol Hill. And my well, role here is as a press secretary, so I help uh, translate a lot of that technical and scientific information for the public, um, for the media in particular, and occasionally for policymakers.
1: Well, excellent. Um, I think uh, well actually I had you you know, take an opportunity to take a look at the Venus Project. Did you have any comments about it so far, just given with the limited time you've had to check it out?
0: i haven't had a great deal of time to look at it i mean generally it seems like you all are you know looking at long-range solutions uh, particularly to environmental problems um, and i don't think that we take um, as long of a view as you all do we're really looking out to um, about 2050 at the maximum when it comes to climate change um, and a lot closer to around 2030. Um, and in part that's because we're a policy-based organization um, and a lot of people want to look at you know what policies can you put in place today And how well can you project the effects of those policies out, um, you know, in the very short term, out to about 20 or 30 years. uh, It gets pretty hard to do economic analysis when you're looking at um, 40 or 50 years. There's a little reticence um, in the policy community to look at that. Uh, But certainly when we deal with climate change, uh, we're looking at potential negative effects that would last for a very long time. Uh, We're looking at carbon dioxide that could stay in the atmosphere for Uh, centuries or millennia and continue to heat the earth Um, and with nuclear weapons and nuclear power uh, as we know if there's ever uh, an accident or uh, nuclear leakage from a plant uh, radiation leakage uh, or if forbid there's uh, some sort of nuclear attack uh, you have to deal with the consequences of that um, on a similar time scale so I'd say, you know, it's, it's sort of a matter of time scales and that's where um, our interests sort of cross over here, and I guess part of the reason that uh, you reached out to us.
1: Well, yeah, that's definitely the case. And, you know, although the Venus Project definitely does look a lot further into the uh, future, we still are interested in much, short-term, much more short-term answers. Mm-hmm. So, thank you very much, also, just for for being willing to come on the show and share with us the work that you've been doing more recently. A lot of us are interested in more short term uh, solutions now. Mm-hmm. Um, given' it's how that you know it's like we have all of these ideas and we see that there's a problem. so a lot of us are you know sweating our appetites. So how do we you know what do we do next is the next question, and that's kind of what we're working on now. so yeah. um now, you were talking about uh, various um, things that you guys are involved in. and you were also talking about cars. um so, mm-hmm. Tell me about some of the work that you've done with cars.
0: Well, we had a, a really great victory um, shortly after Barack Obama came into office. Um, it, he struck a deal among the automakers, of the states, uh, and several other players, and he put new uh, fuel efficiency and heat trapping emissions requirements for cars into place. Uh, we've had a fuel economy law in the United States for vehicles. Um, since the 1970s, they were instituted during the oil crisis, um, and we did dramatically increase fuel economy back then, uh, but then those standards really tapered off uh, during the 1980s and 1990s. Um, so a few years ago when you know gas started spiking uh, up to 3 $4 a gallon, uh, it's obviously an issue that became a lot more salient to people, a lot more salient to members of Congress, and they increased those fuel economy standards uh, for the first time in a very long time to 35 miles per gallon by 2020. Uh, what Obama did was accelerate that um, That's the minimum that Congress set. So we're going to achieve 35 miles per gallon average for new cars and trucks produced in the United States, um, for sale in the United States, uh, around 2015. Um, so that's probably the one of the single biggest steps, uh, really, anyone's taken to clean up the environment, to get the country off oil, Um And, you know, that was a huge victory, and we're still savoring that victory. We're still uh, seeing it get finalized through the federal regulatory process, and we're following that closely, uh, you know, to make sure the automakers are playing ball. And what that's going to do is really unleash a lot of the conventional technology that's already on the road in a lot of vehicles, Uh, and we're going to see that deployed en masse um, into nearly all vehicles that the automakers produce. Uh, And this is pretty simple stuff. Um, You know, if any of your listeners are – uh, you know, Gearheads, it's making sure you have a six-speed transmission instead of a four-speed, so your engine is operating at higher efficiency um, at various different speeds. Uh, it's making sure the air conditioning units in the car uh, are cleaner than conventional ones. It's making sure that the engines have um, you know better timing so that the pistons and the spark plugs are always operating at maximum efficiency to make sure you're combusting gas at the you know maximum most helpful time to make sure the pistons are all running in sync. Um, You know, it's stuff that is kind of boring compared to the long-term technological stuff we're talking about, like hybrids and electric cars, Uh, but it's really the meat and potatoes of increasing our nation's fuel economy. Uh, And one of the things that that does is instead of, you know, sending money to the oil companies, sending money um, to countries that are exporting oil to the United States, you create an economic situation where people have, you know, extra money in their pockets at the end of the day. Um, And a lot of times that money gets spent in local communities uh, where it does – where you know it improves quality of life in those local communities creates more jobs makes more local investments uh, puts that money to work harder in those local communities um, and that's something that environmentalists could get behind it's something that engineers could get behind and it was something that uh, national security folks uh, could get behind too a lot of generals and admirals for really clutching that debate Um, So that's what we're looking forward to now Um, So the automakers, like I said, are going to meet that through a lot of conventional technology And they'll probably also meet that through some hybrid technology um, Through cars like the Toyota Prius or the Honda Civic Hybrid um, Or even the Ford Escape Hybrid Um, And it's really technology that we're going to see uh, across the board From everything to, you know, tiny subcompact cars um, All the way up to big SUVs They can all get more efficient Um, So that's probably the most exciting development with clean vehicles right now
1: now there was a lot of hoopla in regards to the the e v one and the you know the the documentary who killed the electric car and uh, how people seem to feel that obviously that they think that anyway that the technology is actually ready to go now i mean what would you what would be your feelings on that?
0: yeah, I think that uh you know the automakers had a chance to get it out there um, you know they weren't required to um, in a really large way. The air resources board has um, out in California which made their zero emission vehicle program. Uh, There were some ways for the automakers to comply with that, um, and it's been changed now, so they have different ways of complying with it. Um, So electric cars are definitely on the horizon. Uh, GM has obviously been the one out there uh, with their Chevy Volt, which is a partial electric vehicle. The real problem that they're running into um, is battery technology, and battery technology is key to not only clean vehicles but also to storing energy from um, uh, renewable energy facilities. Uh, You know, wind turbines and solar panels, being able to effectively store that energy for when the sun isn't shining as brightly or when the wind isn't blowing as hard. Same thing in cars. You want to be able to store a lot of energy um, and release it through a really efficient battery. Uh, And right now, um, you know, a lot of the research is going into making that battery technology better and better. So what we're at with now with the major automakers um, is we have something like the Chevy Volt, which people will be able to go about 40 miles. On a single charge. So, you know, if your commuting range is within those 40 miles, you could be taking all electric trips to and from work, Uh, and that's great because you're really cutting the pollution from that car down dramatically. Even if you're getting your electricity from a coal-fired power plant, uh, you're you're cutting your pollution pollution at least in half. But if uh, you're going beyond those 40 miles, you're kicking in a gasoline engine again. Um, So obviously, it's not ideal. And there's full electrics that are beyond that. Um, hopefully, we can get to a point as battery technology uh, improves where you know it's going to be feasible for a lot of people um, to get behind the wheel of an electric car uh, to have it be priced somewhere, you know, around other vehicles. Uh, but we think that's something that's going to be, um, you know, decades off to have that you know sort of massive push for all electric vehicles. Um, hybrid vehicles obviously have a lot of promise too and rely on a lot of the same technology, um, and these partial electric vehicles, uh, they're really just one technological grade up from something like a hybrid. A hybrid is going to be running on gasoline and electricity simultaneously most of the time. It'll run just on the battery when your car is stopped, and that partial electric vehicle just has you know, a beefier battery, so it takes it to that next level um, where you can be all battery for a short period of time or a short range uh, before you go back and electric vehicles also present an infrastructure problem um if you buy an electric car or a part one of these partial electric vehicles you can set up an outlet in your garage easily enough to charge your car the question is when you get to work or when you get to the grocery store when you get to grandma's house you know are they going to have an outlet that you can use so it's partially an infrastructure problem too so as partial electric cars as these plug-in cars uh, become more popular uh, we hope that we can also see um, you know incentives for businesses um, for mass for uh, mass transit depots, whatever, to have charging stations so people can plug in and charge their cars um, to full capacity while they're out doing something else.
1: Yeah, that definitely I, I can understand where you're coming from with that. I know that the E v one was supposedly been able to go to uh, about two hundred and fifty miles on a charge, and they had talked about <laughs> apparently a battery company that had been purchased by Texaco was able to make a battery that they felt could extend the EV1 to 500 miles on a charge. And so Texaco purchased the company and then just sort of shut down that project. At least that's you know, what they would lead you to believe in the documentary. It seemed pretty solid to me. sounds like something the oil companies would do. And, and I guess that, um, you know, that brings actually something else you were talking about that we were going to talk about today was the, the real price of continuing to use coal and oil. Um and uh how it's probably a lot worse off than anybody really thinks. So yeah, you know, feel free to go ahead and share your data on that and then we'll continue.
0: Yeah, sure. I think that um you know generally what we've seen with where companies' investment strategies were back in the 70s um and the eighties and the nineties, um, you know, they'd look at green investments as something that might have some potential payoff, but you know, it certainly wasn't gonna be something that was gonna pay off next quarter or next year. Uh, and as you know, a lot of these companies are really looking at increasing quarterly profits for their shareholders every year. So the financial incentive has always been, um, you know, something that's skipped over environmental values. Um, but meanwhile, you know, the the new school of economists and, um,
1: All right, um, I apologize to all of the listeners for that breakup and the sound. Um, we're still here uh, live uh, with a member of the Union for Concerned Scientists, and I was just getting to the issue of climate change with him. Um, so if you uh yeah if you want to go ahead and continue either from where you left off as I have no idea whether or not the listeners heard you or not, which is unfortunate. Um,
0: or I, yeah, I was um go ahead yeah, I guess I was just wrapping up a little bit of the politics of climate change and how the science has been. Uh, obfuscated um, and manipulated because it's so heavily involved in politics, it's so heavily involved in, you know, powerful political entities like the oil companies and the coal companies um, and the potential for them to, to regulate, to get regulated and have to change their way of business. Um, but on the actual science itself, I mean, the the most convincing thing that I can say, um, people who either aren't sure about the science have read a lot of information, uh, you know, from wherever about the science that makes them doubtful, I'd say, you know, forget all that. Look at, you know, the truly credible information sources on this stuff. Look at the National Academy of Sciences, completely independent scientific body um, that's, you know, been uh, an independent branch uh, or independently funded branch um, of the U.S. government since the Civil War. Um, They tap into the best scientific minds across the country to handle any number of issues. Um, And they have a statement on climate change, and it says that human activity particularly the production of excess carbon dioxide is driving climate change. And that's true for the American Geophysical Union, which is the American group of geophysicists, the American Meteorological Society, uh, really on down the line for all these uh, different scientific disciplines. And actually there's not a single professional scientific society in America that questions that mainstream scientific consensus on climate change. Um, so, you know, that, that bulk of scientific opinion you rarely get on any issue um, in science, and here it is. Uh, and then, of course, at the international level, we had the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change draw the same conclusion. Uh, that involved 2,500 researchers, um, about 6 to 800 of whom actually worked on the first chapter of the report, which had to do with um, determining the causes of climate change. Uh, they looked at every peer-reviewed article in the scientific journals And they came to the conclusion that, according to that bulk of evidence, human activity is driving climate change. And at the basic scientific level, what scientists have done collectively over the past 20 years is they've identified all the factors that fit into our climate, um, what makes the Earth's climate system work, and how it changes over time. And while temperatures have been going up measurably, um, more than more than about a degree and a half Fahrenheit. Um, since pre-industrial times, uh, global average temperatures, that's been going up. Meanwhile, all of the natural factors that control that have an effect on the Earth's climate, uh, volcanic activity, the position of the continents, the power emitted by the sun over time, uh, even the the Earth's orbit around the sun, none of that has changed in that short time period. The only thing that has changed uh, is the production of heat-trapping gases, primarily carbon dioxide, um, also methane from uh, methane from a lot of processes, but mostly cow burps uh, from farms and the, the great cattle herds uh, that we have across the world. Those are the major environmental changes um, that have happened over time, and they're really stark. Um, we went from about 270 parts per million carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Uh, during George Washington's day in the 1700s, and now we're up to about, uh, a little more than uh, 380, maybe near 390 right now. Uh, so a really large percentage increase of carbon dioxide as the world was industrialized from burning that coal, from burning that oil, all that old organic matter, uh, and from destroying forests. Um, so really, you know, it's, considering the amount of coal oil that's been burned uh, and the forests have been destroyed, it would be really surprising if there were no climate effects. Um, So, you know, scientists have really eliminated the variables. And I've compared it to a car mechanic. If anybody's ever had an experience um, repairing their car or if you've got someone in the family who's really handy who's done that, what you do is, you know, you have a clanging noise. Okay, you go to the manual. What could cause a clanging noise? There's ten things. You eliminate nine of them. Then you confirm that it's the tenth thing. And then you fix it. So we're at the point where scientists have eliminated the nine other things that could be causing the warming and they've only got this one other thing left, um, and it's carbon dioxide, and they've essentially confirmed that it's carbon dioxide and these other heat-trapping gases. Um, so that that's where they're at, and I guess that's the broadest way of describing it scientifically, um, but there still is a lot of misinformation out there, and a lot of it's just sort of um, you know cherry-picking. It's not even anything that has to do with the main issue of carbon dioxide. Um, the, the debate sort of sort of shifted to the to the periphery now, and it's um, you know it used to be the people would argue, well, the earth's not warming. Okay, well it's warming, but humans aren't causing it. Okay, well humans aren't co- humans are causing some of it, but not all of it and it won't be dangerous. Okay, it'll be dangerous, but it won't be as dangerous to the United States as it will be to the rest of the world, so we shouldn't care. Um, and we've seen those <laughs> arguments just kind of – I've just called it like moving the goalposts, and you can, you can just trace this back through news articles, through public statements from groups that oppose action, um, and that's how it's delineated. Uh, and you saw it happen in the tobacco industry too they said it doesn't cause lung cancer okay well it causes some diseases but you still can't prove it causes lung cancer okay it causes lung cancer but it's not the only thing okay it causes lung cancer and it's bad but we should still have the freedom to smoke and how dare you regulate something people should be free to do and for me it's like I I would prefer if the tobacco industry had simply started at the ideological argument about freedom and didn't go after the science Um, and you know, I've, I've run into, um, you know, a lot of conservative people who say, well, I, I don't know about, you know, the global warming science and this and that. And if I talk to them for a while, you know, I've, I've gotten some folks say, okay, well, you know, the science makes sense, but honestly, I'm just still uncomfortable with the government doing this sort of regulation. And you know what? I'm not going to argue against someone's um, ideological preferences. Those are pretty deeply held. Um, what offends me and the reason that, you know, I, I do some of what I do at this job and kind of hit back against the, the anti-science stuff and what I perceive as the pseudoscience stuff, um, you know, when you, when you go back against that, it's like, you know, just stick to the ideology. It's through really, um, I, you know, I think if a lot of people really critically self-examine why do they believe this or the, that about the science, um, a lot of it is tied up in people's ideology. You know, if you don't believe that, it's the government's job to solve a big environmental problem like this, it's easy to, your next step is to say, well, maybe it's not really even a problem and it can't be that bad. Um, well, those crowds
1: that, in general, I've seen that they don't yeah. want to really put a regulation on anything. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, it is no matter how dangerous it is. And then they, they usually tell you that the consumer is going to be the changing force that's somehow going to fix everything, even though obviously the consumers don't care enough either. They wouldn't be shopping at Walmart or buying Hummer, you know, Humvees or doing any of the other things that they do. That's, It's kind of short-sighted at that point. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of uh, libertarians and conservatives, um, you know, if you you want limited government, um, you know, you'll look, everyone has, like, exceptions, right? Um, So usually, like, a pure libertarian is uh, an anarchist in a way. Uh, A lot of libertarians aren't anarchists. They do see a minimum role, um, you know, for government, whether or not it's, you know, financial markets and making sure they're safe whether or not it's national defense uh, something like that Um, and if you're going to tackle environmental problems it's one of those things where you know government is the necessary evil from that perspective that um, has to come in otherwise the problem doesn't get solved Um, at a very very local level you you can see voluntary solutions if um, you know the company might stop dumping toxins in the river um, (laughs) because everyone in the town loves the river but or, or the lake or whatever it is. Um, but when you're dealing with a sort of global level problem like this and we're talking about excess carbon dioxide production, um, you know you really need you really need the the government to incentivize cleaner technology to get that cleaner de- technology deployed and out there over time. And um, you know there's um, th- there's really no other solution to this problem right now other than uh, reducing the amount of carbon dioxide that's gone into the atmosphere uh, because if we don't, uh, you know, the worst-case scenarios that are out there are global temperatures going up, uh, something on the order of uh, 11 degrees Fahrenheit. And that, that's average temperatures going up, and it's a change in the climate. So when a lot of people think about the climate, they think about the weather, right? And uh, You might think, okay, well, you know, there's more than an 11-degree difference between winter and summer. Uh, where I live, I can deal with 11 degrees. But that's just weather. When we're talking about climate, you know, we're talking about a permanent shift in um, the types of crops that can be grown in a region and the type of plants and animals that live there. And we're talking about a permanent shift in sea levels. Um, and, you know, more than a majority of people on the Earth live in coastal cities. So we're talking about protecting the infrastructure that human civilization has, been, has built, um, you know, during the past 5,100 years and protecting that and preserving it against, you know, multiple-meter sea level rise, um, which is, you know, pretty much a lock if we don't do anything about climate change um, and you know that's something again like you said we're doing it for our kids and our grandkids and we're doing it for ourselves too um, you know if we plan on living for a few decades um, well uh, real quickly but, though uh, just yeah, just sure. to add
1: um, you know one of the things about is that what about the theory that people are saying that actually that just these occasional jumps in, in global warming come from just uh, changes in the sun uh, that the sun is just putting out more heat I mean I presume you've probably heard that theory by now
0: yeah, sure. Um, so we have we've had consistent satellite measurements of the solar output from the sun since 1976, um, and now we have you know multiple different measurement sources um, besides satellites, ground-based detectors, telescopes, what have you, uh, and it just hasn't shifted that much um, to be able to explain you know any of the jumps. Um, people have um, talked about sunspot cycles, stuff like that. None of it correlates. You know, none of it matches. Um, Cycles have as much to do with recent climate change as they do with, you know, the close to the Dow Jones Industrial Average every day. Uh, The correlation just isn't there. So it's natural to assume that because the sun is the source of all heat on our planet, uh, that it has something to do with it, and it certainly does over the long term. Um, You know, but over these past 50 years, when we've seen this uh, steady rise in temperatures, that rise in temperatures matches the rise in carbon dioxide, heat-trapping emissions in the atmosphere, uh, and the sun has stayed pretty much flat. Um, Now, if you want to talk about long-term climate change that happens over the course of hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years, you bet the sun has something to do with it, and that's definitely affected our climate in the past, Um, and that's another thing that um, is typically used to obfuscate the debate by the other side. Uh, so indeed, you know, there used to be glaciers over Indianapolis. Um, you know, dinosaurs used to roam Montana um, and swampland. You know, there was an ocean over Wyoming. All that's true, but all that happened, to, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago. The Earth's continents were in different positions. That's the other big long-term factor that happened. Um, so these are the sort of things that play into long-term climate change and ice ages. But again, that stuff happens over hundreds of thousands, millions of years, and we see those regular cycles. The Earth's orbit um, shifts in three distinct ways around the sun, and those different cycles interact with one another. Sometimes they're in in sync and out of sync, and the ice ages happen when um, they get in sync and the Earth draws farther away from the sun and receives less heat. Um, So, you know, that's something we can worry about 100,000 years from now. Um, but as far as climate change goes, human-induced climate change, that's something we have to worry about now because the carbon dioxide and the heat-trapping emissions we're putting into the atmosphere, that's going to lock in warming for the next 50 or 100 years. So it's at the level now where it's going to affect us in our lifetimes, it's going to affect our kids and our grandkids. Um, And when you look at the Earth's climate history, it's it's fascinating. Um, And a lot of mass extinction events um, on Earth have been related to these dramatic shifts in climate, um, including there's a time period um, a few hundred million years ago where most of the, most of the Earth's landmass um, was on, toward the South Pole. And when that happened, it's, it's at the South Pole, it's a colder region of the Earth that gets covered in ice. What does ice do? It reflects sunlight. Um, so the Earth wound up crusting over with ice uh, for the most part. 90% of life on Earth went extinct. Um, so, you know, that's, that's part of our natural climate history. Um, and that was a very extreme change with climate change. We're talking about increasing temperatures, you know, going the other direction, um, in the same sort of extreme way, um, not not to paint a doomsday scenario, because obviously, um, you know, we're smarter than the trilobites that were hanging out at the bottom of the ocean, um, you know, who ate it during that event. But, you know, when we look back at the natural climate shifts that's happening, it's, incredibly stark to think that, um, you know, human civilization is so advanced that we could be causing climate change on the level that it takes the earth to do on its own hundreds of millions of years. We could be doing it through human induced activity, um, you know, over a period of just a hundred years by so dramatically changing, uh, the composition of our atmosphere. Um, so that that's a long way of answering your question, but that puts what modern climate scientists are seeing, um, in context of what they've studied in the past.
1: Okay. Well, yeah, definitely um, I see where you're going with that. I mean, we've talked about a lot of different topics today. I definitely want to thank you for coming on the show. Um, So basically now, just to recap, the Union of Concerned Scientists, obviously other than the global warming issue, um, because this is something else that I bring up when the the global warming argument comes up between activists, is I just say, look, you know, uh, even if... You know, it's not causing global warming. I still don't really think that you know dumping excessive amounts of pollution into the air is a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. It, you know, so yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. It, 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 it's amazing to me actually, is that it, it, the the counter uh, propaganda in, in that direction actually? It's like you can't even talk environmentalism in, for example, libertarian circles at all because they claim it's all been infiltrated and it's all BS. And I'm like, oh, okay. So that means that just dumping toxic waste into rivers is okay then. Oh, gee now, I'm glad you cleared that up for me <laughs> you know so I mean I'm skeptical of this stuff just because you know i I've, I've seen like i said I've seen so many quote unquote experts on both sides of the argument, and I see where you're coming from, and I, I definitely value what you've added and now it just but overall though, um, as I've told people before because like i I sometimes you know i I get people to watch big ideas uh, for a small planet, which is actually how I discovered you guys organization in the first place yeah. and you know and it, they talk about global warming quite a bit and i and they usually did, they just they stop. Listening after the guy says the words "global warming," even though he's talking about how we could make a self-sustaining car or run your car on vegetable oil, or you know, I was like, "Look, man, these are all good ideas, okay? You know, just get off the global warming thing. You know, even if it's not causing global warming, you know, it is causing pollution. We know that smog did not just spontaneously appear over cities. (laughs) What do you think caused it? It's it's obviously not a good idea."
0: Yeah, it's really a confluence of interest that uh, is putting this on the agenda because it isn't purely about, um, you know, climate change and protecting the future. I mean, it is also about here and now sort of stuff. It's about the consequences of $4 a gallon gas um, and the consequences of being a nation that's dependent on oil, uh, being tied up in the politics of oil-producing countries. Um, You know, it's about providing jobs for people. We know that uh, producing renewable energy creates more jobs than producing energy from, um, you know, from coal-fired power plants. Um, yeah, so the, those are the arguments that are out there. I think you see those arguments a lot more nowadays because of the economic context that we're in um, and also because of this increased understanding of you know, clean energy um, and clean energy production and use being tied to economic well-being. Uh, but, yeah, it does turn a lot of people off. I think, it's, um, I think the science has been, unfortunately, politicized um, pretty badly. And, oh, know, yeah,
1: we're, in yeah, the Venus yeah. Project, we talk about this all the time. If, if there's a lot of money at stake, you're always going to have that problem. <laughs> but, yeah, please continue.
0: Yeah, for I mean, for us, we're a science group, so, you know, we spend most of our time counteracting. Um, but when we're on the science, we spend most of our time just, you know, first of all, trying to, to bring this issue down to Earth for people um, and basically look at, you know, say, an area like the Midwest and say, okay, well, what does climate change actually mean for you? Because when... Uh, when the UN did their report, they, you know, they looked at, like, North America. And we don't think of ourselves as North Americans. We think of ourselves as Ohioans and New Jerseyans and these sort of things. Um, so we've tried to bring some of that down to, you know, ground level so people can put climate change in the context of what it actually means for their life um, and for the future of the area that they live in, you know, uh, what their kid's life is going to be like, what, you know, farmers are going to be able to do in their area, uh, that sort of thing. Um, and we spend, you know, um, it's still a, a significant portion of our time uh, just hitting back against misinformation. Um, you know, but we also try to provide some perspective to the environmental groups that we work with um, and to also be able to, you know, they in part look to us to say, okay, what is the accurate scientific thing um, that we can say? So I, I think that, that, and you know, we, we, we peg people if we think they've gone too far. Um, you know, with a statement that we don't think is backed up by the science. Um, And we know because that we take an advocacy position on environmental issues, everything that we put out there about the science better be accurate and you better be able to back it up. Um, Because, you know, certainly when you're working in politics, if you say something that um, you can't back up with facts, you lose your credibility really quickly if you can't do it. So we we tend to be pretty careful because of that perception. Um, and I think that's something unique that our organization brings to the mix, and it's part of the reason that, you know, I like working here. You know, I, I want to have these discussions um, when we put out scientific information about what's accurate what isn't, especially when you're trying to translate it into English and get rid of a lot of the scientific jargon, um, that sort of stuff. Um, but i tell you, you know, I, I honestly think if the science radically went in some other different direction for whatever reason. You know, we, we'd be the first to say, okay, this is where the science is. You know, this is it, Um, and that hasn't happened. And most scientists think the same way. Scientists are the most, you know, frontal-brained, critical people you will ever meet. They are trained to constantly question their own assumptions, their own perceptions, their own data, uh, and they're constantly trained to question one another. Um, You know, to bring up an example, there was a debate that persisted in paleontology circles for years about whether or not not birds were descended from dinosaurs, Um, and there's still disagreements over that. Um, They've mostly gone in one direction, which is that, yeah, birds are descended from dinosaurs. Um, But, you know, you you look at a debate like that on an issue like that with hard fossil records, and paleontologists still found reason to argue with one another for about 20 years over it. So when (laughs) when we look at something like climate science, we're talking about invisible gases in the atmosphere. We're talking about comparing what's happening today to what happened 600 million years ago. Um, I mean, you're talking about a massive scientific enterprise over the past three, four decades um, and a, a huge consensus finding process among this huge collection of scientists um, who were schooled in a lot of different scientific disciplines to look at it from a lot of different scientific perspectives. The consensus on climate change um, among scientists and the, the fact that, you know, the, the temperature increases human cause, um, it's amazingly robust. I mean, compared to lots of other disciplines, compared to uh, you know cosmology and a lot of other things that you know I'm interested in because I'm a science geek, um, it, you know it, it really is robust and amazing. So I think when people take the time to um, you know seek out the perspective of scientists who are actually in the field, it becomes pretty clear. Um, and I, I think the um, the best book that I ever read. On this topic that really just laid out the basic science as best as possible is a book called Dire Predictions uh, by a scientist named Michael Mann, M-A-N-N, and he, um, he, he published it with a science education publishing house called DK, um, and it's just got graphics there that really, you know, make everything as clear as possible, and it's a book that I wish I had 10 years ago because I had to learn all this stuff, uh, you know, conversationally with the climate scientists that I work with. Um, you know, folks with other outstanding questions, we have uh, a frequently asked questions on global warming on our web page. pretty easily accessible at UCSUSA.org. Um, and the other two resources that are really good, um, you know, for a lot of the, I call them contrarian arguments that come up, uh, there's a magazine called New Scientist. Um, it's a really trustworthy scientific magazine, and they've made, um, you know, they call it the Global Warming Guide for the Perplexed. It's pretty easy to find uh, through Googling it. Um, there's an environmental publication called Grist um, that did the same thing. So, you know, a lot of times these arguments—it's just sort of, you know, was, you know, if a person's making it on a blog post or whatever, you know, I, I, I see it and I'm thinking like, you know, man, you know, it's two clicks away is, you know, the explanation for why that's wrong. Um, and it, you know, a lot of people are just resistant to it, um, but the information is all out there, uh, you know, from credible sources and especially those scientific societies. Um, for that number of scientific societies to have a statement of agreement um, on an issue like this um, is is really incredible and amazing. And I I don't think you can find it really on any other um, non-medical scientific topic. I think the medical stuff gets a lot of the same sort of scrutiny and attention, too. But with climate change, um, you know, it's uh, hands down far and above, um, you know, the the other um, sort of robust sciences that we've built up.
1: Um, uh, one of the listeners actually in the chat room wants to know if you ever heard of Bob Carter.
0: Bob Carter.
1: Yeah, apparently uh, somebody... Sounds,
0: sounds, sounds familiar, but no, not ringing a bell.
1: Um, you know, and uh, I guess uh, this is one of the things actually would come up is that, you know, people always say that uh, they feel that the scientists in question are in some way, you know, their their paychecks depend on, <laughs> um, you know whether or not they're going to give out this information, and then I also kind of point out though is that there's also yeah, yeah. a serious profit motive behind uh, companies who don't want to have to address the issue too. So it's there, there, there would be money to be handed out on both sides of that situation. So I, I can't really, I mean, <laughs> obviously companies don't want to make changes, you know, to to affect mm-hmm. global, you know global warming if it, if the, even if the you know if that's true. And you know, yeah. and obviously scientists, you know, you know, there may be some who are interested in their futures, but it's it. Those, I think, those two things kind of cancel each other out because. Well,
0: the, you know, yeah, the, the two things the, the two things I also say are that you know, just anecdotally, I I've yet to meet a scientist who's in it for the money. Um, and I, I've met scientists who don't work in the nonprofit field like we do. Uh, you know, when you work in the nonprofit field, um, you're usually doing that because you care about the work and you find it interesting and you take the salary hit. Um, the other thing is that if a scientist were able to overturn the consensus by pointing out huge holes in the data or, um, you know, something like that, that person would basically become the most famous scientist on the planet overnight or, you know, if it was a of scientist, whatever. Um, you know, so they actually, you know, there's been an incentive for years for a scientist to go do that and the vetting process that these scientific papers um, have gone through Um, Over time, especially the UN process, especially uh, the processes, again, for these statements from the scientific societies, uh, it's amazing. I mean, for scientists, it's all about the merits of the argument. It's all about what the data says, um, and that's what they look at. So they look at, you know, the quality of the data coming from uh, ice core samples that let us know how much carbon dioxide was in the atmosphere, um, you know, thousands of years ago from tree ring data that lets us know what it was hundreds of years ago. Um, and you know, from observation stations and satellites, it's all about the quality of the data and what conclusions you can draw from that data. Um, so I, I guess just culturally, scientists aren't immune to that sort of thing, but they're aware that that's a bias that can enter into what they do, so they are ultra-vigilant against it. And that's definitely true in climate science. Um, I think another area where it pops up a lot is medical research, um, especially medical research sponsored by drug companies. And there are lots of scientists yeah. who work for those drug companies, um, you know, and when they're submitting something to a journal, they have to say who it was paid for. And that's, you know, that's universal across a lot of scientific journals. You have to say who, you know, who cut the checks to do the research. Um, so, you know, it's part of the disclosure that they do. And, um, you know, it's just not there. I mean, even if a scientist wanted to, they couldn't get away with it because they're they have to answer to hundreds and thousands of other people in their field who are basically going to say, you know, nice paper, but what about this, 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 and this? And then they have to answer it. And if you don't have the merits of the argument behind you and if you don't have the data behind you, it doesn't get answered. Um, that's, that's actually, uh, it, yeah. just
1: real quick, that's how, that's one of the reasons why the Venus Project feels that that's how we should really approach just about everything, you know, like social activities, just that, you know, that politicians generally are very ignorant of this sort of thing and they're getting told by lobbyists on one side, you know, and politicians you know just different political aspects on the other, and it's very hard for them to make good decisions, and that's why actually Jacques Fresco said that um politicians should be at the forefront of science and technology. They shouldn't have to be talking to other people about this. they should know about it already, <laughs> you know, just it, you know, world like that but uh we're down to the last ninety seconds of the show. I want to thank you very much for being on. I'm sorry about the earlier technical problems. I also apologize to my listeners. Um, thanks again for being on, and um, if at any point anything really big comes up and you want to talk about it, you know, you have my contact information, please get a hold of me.
0: Yeah, sure, and if folks want to uh, learn more about our organization, again, our uh, URL is UCSUSA.org, um, and if folks go to the press section or the media section on our website, uh, you know, my con- my contact info is right there, and uh, folks can send me an email if they have any follow-up questions or if they want to learn more about what I've been talking about. So thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay,
0: have a good evening. You too. Bye. Well,
1: that was it for V Radio tonight. I'm sorry about the, the breakup. I think I somehow dropped the call and was not aware of it, um, but I hope that it didn't ruin the entire interview because he had a lot of really good information that many of you missed about the issue of global warming. I still think that after hearing arguments on both sides of it, that it's the kind of thing that just makes me wish I was a scientist so I could go look at it myself because, as I said earlier, there are profit-motivated reasons to be on both sides of that argument. It would certainly benefit companies to not have to, you know, uh, basically to be, not be forced to, you know, remove CO2, but it certainly would benefit certain scientists to uphold whatever those companies want to say. So I, this is one of the reasons why I say, you know, do your own research, make up your own mind. And uh, thanks again, everybody, for tuning in to V-Radio. Looking forward to next week. I've got, I'm working on getting more guests lined up. And uh, thanks again, and thank you all for your support. Goodbye.